0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for While some health issues are visible to the outside world, many people face chronic conditions that don't have externally visible signs or symptoms, also known as invisible illnesses. In our invisible illness series here at MindBodyGreen, we give individuals a platform to share their personal experiences. Our hope is their stories will shed light on these conditions and offer solidarity to others facing similar situations. So be sure to look at our show notes for the links. You can check out our full series titled Invisible Illness. With that said, we are thrilled to dive into the very subject of invisible illness with Megan O'Rourke, the author of the must read book titled Invisible Kingdom Reimagining Chronic Illness. Megan, welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Jason.
0: Great to have you. I loved your book. The, the title is Invisible Kingdom and really speaks to the the heart of, of so many things we're trying to do at My Buddy Green and uncover all, all of the crap that yes. so many people are dealing with who are going through invisible illnesses. And, and you went through the ringer, which you chronicle so beautifully in, in your book. So let's start there with your personal health journey that led you to to write this book.
1: Yeah. As I say at the beginning of the book, I got sick the way Hemingway says you go broke, right? Which is gradually and then suddenly. So one of the things I try to capture is that I don't exactly know when my illness began. But what I can say is that in the fall of 1997, after I had graduated from college, I remember this morning of getting ready for work. My little East Village apartment, beautiful cold day, I walk outside, I'm stopping to get my coffee and get to the 4-5 train up 9th Street. And all of a sudden, I felt as if I were being attacked by either bees or I had little needles just being poking into my body from all over, up and down my legs and my arms. This kind of attack of what I called electric shocks, and it was incredibly severe so severe that if I didn't rub my arms and legs, it was as if, well, in the end, my legs and arms and kind of twitch and spasm. So It looked quite strange, I'm sure, on the street, rubbing my arms and legs frantically, trying to get the sensation to stop. And really from that point on, I underwent a roller coaster of strange symptoms that no one could quite, no doctor I saw could quite identify a cause for. So those symptoms included Strange bouts of fatigue, like drenching night sweats, and you know I was twenty-one years old, so night sweats are not so common in twenty-one-year-olds. Hives every day for a year that would wake me up in the middle of the night, be all over my body for an hour or two. Strange headaches, vertigo, which I'd never had. I'd been a gymnast, and I had that sense of air space that we talked about last summer in the Olympics, and all of a sudden I. Really couldn't walk up and down stairs. It didn't have backs. So just a whole array of strange symptoms. With, you know, periods of intense fatigue and brain fog and other neurological problems. So I also had terrible abdominal pain whenever I had my period. And so I went to you know a series of doctors as one does. And you know, my dermatologist said, well, maybe the electric shocks were really just dry skin. And my gynecologist said, my OBGYN said, you know, lots of people have abdominal pain. All probably okay. Maybe it's endometriosis, but I'll never forget. She said, it doesn't really matter unless you're trying to get pregnant, which was strange because it mattered to me. I was in extraordinary pain. Yeah, and I just sort of would periodically go to the doctor and say something wrong. I'm really not feeling good. But my labs always looked good. And, you know, I was like a fit 20 something who ran and they would look at my cholesterol. My cholesterol was fine. And they'd always come back and say, Well, maybe you're stressed. You have a really stressful job. I was an editor at the New Yorker at the time. I did have a stressful job. I worked a lot. And so I sort of accepted that at face value. But as these symptoms got worse in my 30s, it became clear that something really was going on that I couldn't ignore. The fatigue got worse. The neurological symptoms got worse. I had to have surgery for lots of cartilage tears that I suddenly have all over my body, just strange things were happening. And finally it got to the point where I thought I can't keep accepting what doctors are telling me. I have to, there's something wrong and I have to get to the bottom of it. But it's slightly shocking to me in retrospect, how long it took to get to that point of of really embarking on my own personal quest. Um, Once I did and started searching for specialists and integrative doctors and seeing acupuncturists and finding specialists in women's health and rheumatologists, I was then belatedly diagnosed with autoimmune thyroiditis. So I had Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune thyroid condition. And, you know, once one doctor actually looked for those antibodies there, they were right. But no one had ever really looked before in the way of the roller coaster, though, I didn't get fully better after being treated for this thyroid disease. So my doctor said to me, look, I think you just have to accept that your life is never going to be the way it once was. You're going to function at 80 percent forever. And I remember looking at her and thinking, 80%, I'm more like 20%, like something's really going on. And I you know, had gone online and was reading. So I said, well, could my cortisol be off? Could I have food sensitivities? And she was really helpful in many ways. She said, I think you should stop eating gluten. A lot of autoimmune patients can't eat gluten, which at the time, very few conventional Western doctors said. So she really helped me. But she could only help so much, right? And there I was still sick. So I just kept searching for answers. And over the years, there were about two more years of me getting sicker and sicker, actually. And I ended up at an infectious disease doctor who did a full panel of infectious diseases and came to the conclusion that I had Lyme disease. I had a pretty suggestive test for Lyme disease. It wasn't a clear CDC positive, but it had a lot of antibodies on it, a lot of them specific for Lyme. And so she said, I really think we've got to get you to be treated for this and take this seriously. Um, So I then underwent kind of radical antibiotic treatment for months and months that immediately did get me much better from, from where I had been. And yet even then, I didn't get fully better, right? So I think my journey was one of realizing, right, I really do live with a chronic illness that I'll never fully understand. But. I felt like there was more I could learn. And over the subsequent years did come to the conclusion after seeing a cardiologist that I have the genetic, a genetic condition known as hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which I'm sure some of your listeners will know about, but it's a group of connective tissue disorders where your collagen is just, you have a gene that means that you don't make collagen the way everyone else does. Your collagen is more frail. It's more fragile. It's more likely to tear so suddenly all those surgeries for joint repairs made sense it's more likely to lead you to have um dysautonomia or problem of the autonomic nervous system in which your veins don't adequately constrict among other things when you stand up leading to faintness and dizziness and brain fog and so, you know, there you have the very simplified version of that, if you can believe it, that's the simplified version of the quest. And along the way, there were a lot of other strange things that kept, started showing up in my lab. And I became interested in the question of why in an age when, you know, you can get a diagnosis for ice cream headache, I think the medical term is phenopalatine ganglioneuralgia. Why did it taken so long to get recognition And diagnosis for what was going on with me.
0: You mentioned your journey had taken years. How how many years from the onset of symptoms in your 20s to that moment where you were satisfied with a medical diagnosis and a plan for treatment? How how many years transpired? Uh,
1: The first diagnosis, which was thyroid disease, was 15 years after the onset. That said, I did get diagnosed with endometriosis a little bit earlier. So that was 10 years after the first, which is still extraordinary. So 10 years after I first went to the doctor saying, something's wrong when I get my period. A full decade later, I got diagnosed with endometriosis. Five years after that, I got the autoimmune diagnosis. And then two years later, so 17 years after the first Lyme symptoms, I was treated for Lyme disease. And if you can believe this, Jason, it was just this past spring that I got the Elder Stanlow's diagnosis. And it was partly because I had been reporting on dysautonomia and I talked to a doctor. She described her patients and I thought, that's me, you know? Yeah. So it's sort of a good 20 year period of looking for answers.
0: Wow. You talked about the, the brain freeze due to ice cream. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting that Western medicine has figured out what that diagnosis is. So since since so many of us suffer from debilitating headaches, from eating really cold, delicious ice cream, it it is a huge priority. And, And in the book, you know, you talk about Western medicine and you summarize that Western typically conceives of disease in three categories. So one, disease with single and identif- identifiable cause, maybe the ice cream brain freeze. Mm-hmm. Two, disease all in your head, think crazy hypochondriac channeling Woody Allen, I love that line. Three, considered to be biologically real but exacerbated by stress. And then fourth, you know, me- mental illness. And, and so look, Western saves lives. There's a lot of medication that helped you. But if that framework represents the old paradigm, which I hope it does, what should be the new paradigm?
1: It's such a great question. Um, I think the new paradigm should be where the best of integrative medicine is headed, right? Which is to say, Using the tools of Western medicine to identify, you know, the presence of infections, the presence of recognizable diseases, but bringing to the table an understanding that every person's body and biography is different and influences their biology, right? And this is the notion that a lot of pre-modern medicine was founded on, and it had a lot of wisdom in it. And if you think about, okay, if you could bring science to that notion today, how much it would offer patients, I think we'd be in a much better place. So one thing that's kind of astonishing is how indifferent Western medicine is to helping patients with chronic illness figure out how to get through the day in a better way, right? We don't all expect to be cured. Cures would be great but I know I'm not going to cure it. I want to live as much of my life as well as I can. And that means thinking about things like sleep, like nutrition, like stress, and my own personal triggers, whatever they might be. And this is what medicine should offer, right? Medicine is in the business of supporting patients, but too often medicine is actually crisis care, right? It's kind of intervention in an acute circumstance when the problem already exists. And where it should be headed is a more complex, multi-layered, multifaceted relationship between doctor and patient that allows for the detective work of finding triggers, making behavioral modification, and finding support for the individual body, right? And it's hard for medicine to do that because medicine is based on studies that find replicability. Whereas part of where we need to go is a more personalized medicine that supports the whole patient.
0: So specific to what you struggle with Lyme disease, which terrifies me Lyme, I find to be terrifying and I am so paranoid about it. So I hear stories like yours quite frequently yeah. and it seems to me, and I think it's, I think you'd agree that the medical establishment really isn't taking Lyme as seriously as they should. So like speaking to Lyme specifically, what can we do better there?
1: Oh, slime! We could talk about this for days. (laughs) (laughs) So I started reporting on Lyme disease after I was diagnosed with it because I really wanted to talk to some of the foremost experts in the country and understand what was going on. So Lyme is, as one of those experts put it to me, John Alcott, he's the director of the Johns Hopkins Lyme Disease Research Center. It's one of the biggest controversies medicine has seen, he said. So one of the terrifying things about Lyme is not just that it's a debil- it can be a debilitating chronic disease in some subset of patients who get it and who just never get better, but that on top of it, when you're one of those patients Your very existence is discredited and invalidated by the entire medical system that's supposedly there to help support you. So I felt like I had woken up into a nightmare when I got the Lyme diagnosis because I thought, not only do I have this complicated condition, which in my case had gone undiagnosed for so long that I had what's known as late stage Lyme, which trust me, you don't want to have. But I couldn't talk to most doctors about it because they would immediately kind of roll their eyes and say chronic Lyme disease isn't real. And never mind that I didn't at that point have chronic Lyme disease. I had undiagnosed, right, late stage Lyme disease that I was about to be treated for. So yeah, so so basically there's um, this standoff between researchers currently where what we For years, the Infectious Diseases Society of America insisted that there were no ongoing symptoms from Lyme disease. What we now incontrovertibly know is that a subset of patients do get a tick-borne disease like Lyme. They do get Lyme, and then they don't get better. That range might be anywhere from 10 to 30%. That's a huge number of people. The question is why? And... There is still a lot of arguing about that, just the way there is now a lot of arguing about long COVID, but some doctors think that it's just immune dysregulation, which is itself very powerful and can make you really sick and is happening clearly in some patients. And some doctors and researchers think that the bacteria itself persists, but the establishment has been so mired in this argument, they haven't been doing enough research into treatment, right? There's just a lot of research into vaccines and not enough research into helping the millions of patients who are living with Lyme disease. And Jason, this is a really astonishing thing that I haven't realized until I reported on Lyme disease, but some people who are getting tick-borne diseases are also getting what's called a co-infection, which you may have heard of, but it's basically two infections or even three infections get transmitted to you at once by the tick. There's things called Babesia or Bartonella. And, you know, ecological research suggests that more and more ticks are, you know, conveying more and more diseases, not just Lyme disease. There's, I think the last time I checked, there were no studies, federal studies into people who had more than one tick borne illness and how to treat them because it was considered too confusing, right, too muddied to study. So how are we ever going to help people with tick-borne disease if we won't even look at the true complexity of the disease, right? So there's all of these ironies and complexities. But the main thing is medicine, you know, I think the, the sort of average GP who's not following this really needs to get informed and kind of up-to-date on the latest studies, which clearly show the possibility of persistence in humans after treatment with antibiotics. Yeah.
0: So you mentioned long COVID, that one seems pretty scary as well. Yeah. As you think about vis invisible illness and getting that look from a medical professional professional, like crazy, or we can't help you. How concerned should we be about long COVID?
1: Yeah, I'm very concerned about long COVID. In fact, when the pandemic first hit, that was, you know, Part of what kept me up at night was not just the horrific acute wave of illness we were seeing, but what I could tell was going to be a coming second wave of ongoing problems for some patients. The good news is that the vaccine does seem to be protective against long COVID, not completely protective. There are definitely people who are vaccinated who get COVID breakthrough infections and then develop long COVID symptoms. So I want to be really careful about that. You know, we need to part of what's scary is that even when you're fully protected, you can still end up with long COVID. But preliminary research suggests that your your risk goes down a little bit. So the first step is, I think, getting vaccinated if you can. Not everyone can get vaccinated. But it's pretty terrifying because basically, we still don't really understand it. There seem to be multiple pathways to having long COVID. And I think what long COVID shows me is that in general, we're too cavalier about viruses, right? That there are a lot of viruses that impact a subset of people, not everybody, but a group of people, a significant group of people in a way that can leave them really debilitated. And that has to do with genetics. And again, this kind of personalized mess we need to move toward. So I don't know. I was reporting on this before the book came out. I was talking to virologists and I just thought, oh no, another bad virus. This is all we need. Like, struggling so much with Epstein Barr as it is, right? Which is another virus that can trigger a lot of autoimmune disease. So, you know, I think we're going to be looking at just an epic rise in autoimmune disease and other conditions that are under the umbrella of long COVID. One thing we do know about SARS CoV 2. Sorry, I'm kind of bouncing around, but one thing we do know about it is that it helps trigger. Quite a lot of autoimmune activity, among the other things like micro blood clotting and impaired, you know, kind of breathing and damage to the vagus nerve. Like, it's just a whole host of bad things. Every time the research comes in, it's just not what you want to hear.
0: Well, it it, it seems like the medical research community has some work to do on long COVID, which I am reading. I, I think more people are taking it seriously. And without question, there's a need for Lyme. And More generally something you mentioned in the book, you have a chapter titled the woman problem up until recently, most medical research was conducted on men exclusively, excluding women altogether. So, uh, you know, we're looking to medical research to, to help us navigate through these complex conditions. And we're not even looking at women, (laughs) I'm, I'm glad there seems to be a change there, but I read that. Wow. I know. I know.
1: Yeah. And to this day, it's almost, you know, mostly done on male animals too. It's like at every stage, the animals are male, the humans are. Yeah. I mean, it was, that was one of the things that surprised me the most was that that they just would approve drugs for the market without checking, do these drugs act differently in women? And a famous example is Ambien, which I think women metabolize half as quickly as men. I might be getting the the facts wrong there, but basically they had to. pull the approved dosage off the market and have it because women were taking Ambien and then getting into car accidents the next day because the drug was so powerful for them in a way that medicine had just not accounted for. And, you know, those are the moments when patients kind of rightly push back and say, we need medical science um, to do better.
0: So you had a two decade journey and everyone should read the book. You have so many great Stories to tell about what that journey was like. And I thought it was interesting. You said that one of the hardest things to convey to doctors and friends was the debilitating fatigue. Why was that?
1: I've thought about this so much. I think there's a few reasons. One, the language we have, fatigue is really not the right word for what patients who have immune-mediated illnesses like autoimmune disease or long COVID experience. It was more like, I remember thinking, it felt like I was getting up in the morning and trying to move through the day, but my body was made of sand and I had to hold it all together. And it was just beyond exhausting, right? It was just this effort, a sense of effort to do basic tasks. So the word fatigue really didn't encompass that. The word fatigue makes it sound like you're tired. But what I felt was as different from what a healthy person feels after missing a little sleep as you know, the coronavirus is from the common cold, right? It's just totally worlds apart. So, I also think we live in this frenetic, hyperproductive culture, sort you of know, late capitalist culture that really doesn't want to even think about ways in which our lives might be limited, right? Doesn't want to contend with limitation, and so. Just in that cultural level, level, no one wants to talk about something vague like fatigue. It just seems like moral weakness, right? One doctor even said to me dismissively, Megan, we're all tired, you know? And I thought, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about something else. So- The astonishing thing to me, like I spent a lot of time trying to read about this when I was really sick, was that there didn't seem to also be an explanation for it. And I think when we lack clear-cut understanding, we tend to, as I argue in the book, psychologize or dismiss it. So without a clear-cut medical scientific explanation of what that sort of cellular bone-deep fatigue that attends these illnesses really is, like what is it? Doctors it off and then Just dismiss it, right? But I think if they knew what it was, if they could say, oh, the ATP processes and this cell or your mitochondria are doing this, then we might have a different relationship to it. But there's a real knowledge gap there. So I think for all those reasons, it was um, impossible to communicate. The reason it was the worst symptom for me, along with brain fog, was that it eroded my very being and sense of self right? I'm a writer. I had wonderful friends. I had a job I loved. I was in pain all the time. The pain I could ignore most of the time. It was depressing. It had its own problems, but I could not overcome the fatigue. I couldn't even carve out like the two hours in the day where maybe I could read a book or write a poem or do something that gave me that intact sense of self. So for me, it was just a really devastating symptom to live with.
0: So- you touched on this a little bit earlier, but I'm curious, how has your philosophy evolved on health in terms of medicine, food, lifestyle, movement, sleep, environment, everything? What, what have you learned in your journey?
1: Yeah. So I think the, the broadest and most important thing I'll say is that it the beginning, I really thought of it as my journey, right? Sort of an individual problem I had to overcome. And along the way, I came to see that my illness was much bigger than me, that so many of us were sick in this way. So many of us had autoimmune diseases or chronic fatigue syndrome and were being ignored and invalidated. And that changed my philosophy a lot from a sort of American hyper individualism to a sort of ethic of care and of social interconnectedness that became really important to my sense of the journey I was on, too. Right. And even as I felt very alone and isolated, I became so aware that I was not alone in this condition, which really broke my heart. And it's part of why I wrote the book. In terms of the other sort of ways my philosophy changed, I think that like many young women, you know, I was excited to live my life and control it and conquer the world, not conquer the world, but I just thought I could control the outcomes in some way. I've been educated to feel that if I just tried really hard and I did the right thing and I, you know, I would get what I want. And I came to really see that. Uncertainty is a key element of our lives, right? Part of the most human element of our deepest connection actually is our our mortal uncertainty among one another, right? With one another. So learning to let go and to stop trying so hard all the time was a really big piece that I probably struggled with the most, right? It was like how to try to go to bed before 10 p.m. How to not push myself quite so hard. There were a lot of more practical philosophical changes. You know, I came to really think of my body not as a car that needed upkeep, like this part, the carburetor is broken, you go to the carburetor doctor. And I started to really see that I had a very naive view of my body as a series of parts and that in fact it was a whole And that, that joy was medicine, right? That like avoiding stress was medicine, that all of these things were really important. And I didn't have to kind of punish myself in order to do well. So I began eating really differently. I had a kind of disordered idea of eating that was, you know, you want to be thin. So your goal is to eat in a way that makes you thin. Right. And I think I really pivoted in while I was sick to understanding that I was trying to eat food and use food to nourish my body and to make every cellular process as smoothly as it could, you know, and that it was like a wonderful part of my life that would strengthen me and bring me health and that it needed to be less processed and, and all of those things. So it led to a really profound shift in my everyday life and my philosophy of sort of seeing myself as much more a mind within a body, right? I think I always thought of my mind as just something, the body just happened to house my mind, right? And I thought, my mind can control my body. And in fact, I really have arrived at a much more holistic sense that if my body's not doing well, my flat my mind's not going to be doing well. And if my mind's not doing well, my body's not going to be doing well. So I hope that answers your question. There's more I could say, but those are some of the key changes.
0: I, I think it's powerful. And I think in the health and wellness world. You know, we're often looking for what's the superfood? What's the marker we're looking for? How should I eat? What should I exclude from my diet? You know, you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet, but at the same time, y- you can't underestimate the power of purpose, yeah. joy. Yeah. Having some sort of belief system, the power of letting go. I think for yeah. us, type A's, that's always the, yeah. the real hard one because we're used yeah. to setting goals and working hard and accomplishing those goals, setting yeah. a new goal and so forth and planning yeah. and letting go is hard and yeah. letting go is really hard when you're suffering and no one's listening to you. And so you're like, I gotta figure this out myself. I need to play Dr. Google. I need to become the conductor of my own healthcare orchestra and figure this out and ask questions and be on top of everything because no one's got my back. And that's hard to do while simultaneously trying to let go because you don't trust anyone.
1: Totally. Yeah. And, you know, something people ask me about a lot. I talk to a lot of people who are in the kind of early part of their chronic illness journey, you know, and something they'll often say is, you know how did you keep going? And it's true that I just I persevered a lot. But one thing I always say to people is, you know, there are times you need to stop. There are times you just need to take a break. And it sucks because it means you're going to be sick longer. But sometimes you just can't do it. And that's part of being sick and looking for answers. So I think when you're sick, it's a really delicate balancing act between the insistence on the reality of your own disease and, you know, absolutely every one of our listeners should feel empowered and motivated to, not motivated, but empowered to get answers from their doctors and to know that if the doctor's not giving you those answers, you should move on. I i didn't know that. I—I I took me so long to realize that. But also to know it's okay sometimes to let go and just let go of the fear if you can and just wait till the moment and you have the energy to keep looking for answers. It's really a a struggle.
0: So what is some of that practical advice for someone listening who's dealing with an invisible illness right now?
1: Yeah. I think the things I wish that I could go back in time and tell my, you know, 21-year-old, 25-year-old, 30-year-old self are to have more compassion for myself. I mean, that sounds really easy to say, really hokey maybe, but I think it's really true. It's just to have been a little gentler. I spent a lot of time feeling that the illness was somehow my fault or an aspect of my character that was a sign I was in the wrong relationship, right? Instead of thinking my illness is a consequence of, you know, all kinds of environmental and genetic accidents and realities, our society's fault, as well as, you know, there are things I can control about it. So There's that compassion to yourself. The other thing I wish I had known was that I didn't have to take in curiosity for an answer. I I really waited far too long to try to find more answers. I took my very nice, but doctors, you know, kind of reassurances at face value. And I didn't say firmly enough to them, no, something's really wrong. I'm not functioning like other people. So there's that. The last piece is it's really hard work, especially when you're young, right? And you're building a light. It's really hard to let go and say, no, I can't go out tonight or no, you know, I need to go to sleep by 9 PM or I can't take on that work project. It just, it was so challenging for me and I felt shame around it. And I was really silent around it at the time. And I hope. And I do think there's a generation of people who are just better about asserting the reality of their own lived experience. And I I do wish that for our our audience and listeners. Yeah.
0: So you're an incredible storyteller and the book is also filled with great research. And I'm curious, was there one specific study that you came across in the process where your jaw just dropped and said, I can't believe that's real?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there was one but i would say what we were talking about before the the fact that research is done so it's ex- almost exclusively on on male animals right and and on men that was pretty astonishing to me the other thing that was shocking to me that's now more vividly dramatized around us was that it was really clear when you talked to researchers that they understood that viruses and bacterial infections can cause ongoing problems in a lot of people. And yet this wasn't in the common parlance. This wasn't something doctors were talking to me about beyond, you know, nope. limited post-viral fatigue. And yet it was really accepted in the medical community of kind of avant-garde researchers, the researchers at the avant-garde of this. So I thought well, this is something people need to know. Related to the first point about women, I interviewed about 100 patients for the book. And what truly did shock me was how many of them had been told their health problems were all in their head, were anxiety or were the consequence of depression. They need to go see a psychiatrist which I'm all for, right? Mental illness is really important and chronic illness, we need to support it. But this kind of directive that doctors were giving to these patients was was also a way of foreclosing their own continuing exploration of what might be going on with this patient. All of those patients except one within two to three years were diagnosed with really debilitating, complicated diseases that had been present and just been ignored. And I just found it astonishing. And as one, more than one patient said to me, but one said really vividly, this happened to her when she was a little girl. She got Epstein-Barr and never recovered. And her parents were told to treat her with the quote was tender, loving neglect from the doctor. And she said this just upended her life because she lost faith in her own subjectivity, right? This is the really damaging part of the invisible aspect of these illnesses is that it's the patient's, it's the person's worldview that suffers and works, not the doctors, right? We're the ones who take that message on and internalize it instead of saying, I think you need to be more informed, right? And so that just, it was astonishing to just hear that story over and over and over again.
0: It's heartbreaking. And if you think of the mental health epidemic that we're experiencing now. And then you throw on a visible illness. If you think about it, if you want to put someone over the edge, there's nothing, not nothing, it's pretty traumatizing for someone to go to a doctor and another doctor, and they all look at you like you're crazy, say there's nothing wrong with you, it's in your head. And if you're already teetering and struggling with your mental health, that's going to put you over the edge. Yeah, And it's really scary given what's going on in the world right now.
1: It's really scary. And a particular fear I have around this with long COVID is that there's so many doctors who still don't really understand that what we call dysautonomia, which is dysfunction of your autonomic nervous system, which controls a lot of reflexes in your body, is at play. And a bunch of the long COVID patients I interviewed were getting this invalidation and non-recognition and told specifically to go do PT. And one woman I interviewed said, you know, I would go to PT and then I would collapse because actually really tough PT worsens dysautonomia. You have to do PT in a really specific way if you have dysautonomia. So I'm worried that we're going to see patients whose positions are worsened because they're not being believed and they're told to do this this practice, it's actually contraindicated for them. They need something much more specialized, much more informed. So again, I think patients have to really realize like they're the experts in their own body. You know, we want to follow evidence, but when evidence isn't there, what you know about your body is evidence.
0: Amen. So in closing, I'm an optimist. You're an optimist. You got, you wouldn't have gotten through everything you've gotten through in almost two decades. And so what is your hope with this book? What do you want people to take away? What's the change you want to see in the world?
1: Yeah. There's a few hopes. I almost feel like I can't dare articulate them, but let me try. I think the, the most intimate hope is that other people with invisible illnesses or people close to them will read it, but that the people who have invisible illnesses will read this and feel seen right? They will feel recognized. They will know in a really intimate way that they are not alone. Their stories are going to be different from mine, but hopefully there's things in what I've captured that resonate and bring some kind of solace and comfort further that they could give it to their loved ones and say, this is what I'm going through, right? Because I could never articulate to my brothers or my father what it was until I handed them the book, right? So I hope that on a broader level, I really do wanna change the national conversation we're having around chronic illness and invisible illnesses. And I'd like this invisible kingdom to become visible. I'd really like to see healthcare reform that offers much more coordination of care for chronic illness patients and autoimmune patients and more. And fundamentally, I'd like to see patients be centered and more trust in the narratives that patients tell about these kinds of illnesses so that we can acquire the tools to start to treat research and hopefully you know, learn to live with them better, if not always overcome them, right? Because I, I do want to be careful about not just saying, putting us all back on the recovery narrative that we know is impossible for some of us, right? So, But it is the case that medicine lacks the tools to treat these diseases and it lacks the structural setup that we need to offer comfort and care to patients.
0: Megan. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Jason. This has been just a real pleasure to talk about grim things, but a pleasure to be a dialogue. <laughs>